Paul's letter, this book, arguably could be broken up into two big pieces. And that's the first three chapters of the book and the last three chapters of the book. And the first three chapters arguably are the way that we think about God. And then the second three chapters are the way that we live for him. And so as we think about that, as we consider that natural break within the text and within this book, we can say that Paul, the author of this book, he he had a desire to articulate to us some 2,000 years after the fact of writing it, that he wanted to inform us, he wanted to challenge us, he wanted to encourage us what it looked like to be a Christian living in a non-Christian world. And so the way that Paul does that, the things that Paul and, and God ultimately, through the penning of Paul, says what you need to know living as a Christian in a non-Christian world is two, two big things, what you think and what you do. Okay, so that's kind of like the natural break of the book of Ephesians, a really um, simplistic 30,000-foot view of the book of Ephesians. And those two concepts the way that we think or our thoughts and the way that we act our deeds should look different than the people that we interact with that are not Christians in this non-Christian world. And um, I think we know that. I think that makes sense to us. We understand that. And we know that our life should look different. We know that our actions should look different. The way that we spend our free time, the way that we spend our talents, our treasure, um, our conduct, all of those things should be different. But Paul's argument here in this book is also our thought, the way that we think should be different. And ultimately, the way that we value and understand the concepts of right and wrong and the way that we um, value and understand life and the way that we understand death and then most importantly, the way that we see God should be different. That's why he spends three chapters Uh, in the book of Ephesians, talking about the way that we think about God. The things that we believe about God are absolutely critical as a Christian living in a non-Christian world. And as Aaron said uh, last week, this this book is dense. I think he used that word. He, He used the word heavy and thick. If you remember the message from last week, and he said it's, it's kind of uh, complicated and it, and it gets kind of messy in the details of that really quickly. And um, if we're honest, like we may ask, like, do we really need to know all of this stuff that Paul is writing about? Like, this, it's kind of scholarly, like, is it, is it tangible to my life? And is it really something that we need to dig into for the next um, several weeks as we walk into the book of Ephesians? Because uh, if we're honest, it's like, well, is that not necessarily like for seminarians or theologians or for guys that are going to write books on this stuff? Like, do we, the average day Joe Christian, do, do we need to know what Paul is talking about? And, um, I'm a young guy, if you haven't noticed. Um, it's not, I try to grow out a beard so that it, I don't look like I'm 16 years old, but yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and by God's grace, I was converted at a, at a pretty young age, and so by most people's standards, I, I, have, a, I have what most people would call a, a young walk with Jesus. Um, but in that, 
small timeline of a walk, my wife Emily and I have either directly or indirectly just experienced some of the things that like life has thrown at us. And digging into God's word for Emily and I is not a hobby. It's not some exercise that we just do when we have some like free moments in our life. Like it, it has proven to be absolutely necessary to be a Christian living in a non-Christian world. I mean, as, as we have encountered like death within our family, as we have encountered people that we love that have lost kids, people who have been broken apart because of divorce, people that have suffered with um, the fact that they can't have more kids, and, and all other issues, cancer, depression, all other elements of suffering. And so as, as we walk that li- in, in, this, in this life, Emily and I, we, we have been gently nudged to have something greater for the anchor of our souls than like the Christian fluff that in a lot of ways the Christian world says this is all you need. And, and we've, need, we've needed something greater in those moments. We've need something more foundational, more solid to put our hope in in moments like that. Is, is that where you're at this morning, maybe? Thinking rightly about God matters. It, it impacts us. Every day of my life, God continues to sanctify both me and Emily, not only in deed, but in thought. And so I'm, I'm excited to think about God's sanctifying work within this church, our family, the family of families here this morning, as we get to walk through the book of Ephesians, as we get to encounter some of those difficulties, but we get to do it together. I'm excited about that. So all that in, in mind, let's, let's get into the text, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. If you grabbed one of the Bibles, I think it's on page uh, 674. Um, We're going to begin in verse 3. Maybe just follow along as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you have like specific texts in your life that are pivotal? They're like life-changing texts. Do you remember a situation in your life that you've had? You read a certain text and it, and it, and it, and it helped give you clarity? Or maybe it's like a certain ver- a set of verses that connected with you really tangibly. Maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a set of verses that you were struggling with something and God like led you to at that time and it spoke to where you were. Um, maybe for some of you it's an experience that you um, were actually reading in the text and God opened your eyes to see the beauty of who he was and he saved you. And as you think about your um, conversion experience, you think about like, I remember um, where I was where I was reading, and it changed you. Um, 
these texts are those texts for me. Um, I remember reading them for the first time, I think, 10 years ago. And God began at that point in time in my life to impress upon something significant for me. Something that would probably forever change me in these three verses. And um, I would probably go out to say that it's been something that has moved and shaped me probably more than anything else in my Christian life. And it's, it's what Paul begins this letter with. He says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and if you think about that, Aaron talked a little bit about this last week. It's the way that that's written. Okay, so it follows like this old uh, Hebrew Jewish prayer format. And it's actually a command. He says, Blessed be God because praises do his name. Okay, Aaron put it that way last week. And the beauty of Paul's writing is he, he, it's not an empty statement. I mean, he, he, he knows that we as people like, need to understand like, why God should be praised. And so what follows in the rest of these texts is Paul's ground, the reason why he says, praise God, church. Consider God and praise him. And Paul says it's because he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So praise him. Praise him, church, because you have been blessed. And what's more, Paul goes on to describe to us the extent of that blessing. Verse 4, he chose us to be holy and blameless and that he predestined us, verse 5, for adoptions. We're not going to talk about those two things this week. The choosing of God and the predestining nature of God. We're going to talk about those things next week. So if you were excited about hearing about that, I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. Um, some of you are like, praise God, he's not going to talk about that this week. And so you get to sweat it out one more week. Um, so either you're welcome or I'm sorry. I'm not really sure which way I should say that. But, but I do want to say this morning that, that, that God should be praised, verse 3, because he has blessed us. And the way that he's blessed us is what follows in verse 4 and verse 5. He chose us. He predestined us. And then verse 6, this is where I want to spend the entirety of our time this morning. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. To the praise of his glorious grace. That was the light bulb that went off in my head 10 years ago. And, and, the, and the light bulb, it, it, it kind of, uh, if you think about it, it was kind of like flickering kind of getting momentum, and, and the flicker was that God should be praised in this text because God is doing things to be praised in this text. And, and then that, that, that little flickering of a light bulb began to start growing as I walked down that road over the last 10 years and tried to identify what that actually looked like and what that actually meant. And I came to the realization that God is doing all things for his glory. And specifically in this text, it says that the greatest act of love that God did for another, he ultimately did for his glory. Verse 6, to the praise of the glorious grace. God's act of salvation was ultimately about God's glory. And 10 years ago, I had no idea what that even meant. This, this Christian phrase, like God's glory. 
What, what did that mean? And I heard it said in like a lot of different contexts. Some Christian circles, people are really outspoken about it. Other people, it's like a buzzword. They don't want to use it. They don't want to talk about it. And um, for me, I could not get over the reality that my salvation, the thing that God had done upon me and, and has provided for me, was something that God was doing for himself. And I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile those two things. I couldn't really understand those two things. And so I started digging into Scripture and saying, okay, so what is this idea of God's glory? What does that actually mean? And I did that in two ways. I started reading more Scripture sort of reading God's word, and I started talking to other Christians and asking them, what's your experience with this? Tell me what, how you perceive it and how you understand it. And over the last 10 years, I've been marked with two things as I thought about God's glory. And that's first, God's scripture talks a lot about God's glory. I mean, God's scripture talks a lot about God's glory. And then the second thing is that not a lot of Christians had context to talk about God's glory, let alone understand how it impacted their life. And so maybe that's where you're at, like right now. I, even, I say that word or that phrase, God's glory. And um, if you've been at um, Church Project or, or other churches that talk about that phrase, um, you may be familiar with it. Um, but maybe that's all. It's just kind of something that you, is kind of a Christianese, if I can use that, um, that word out there. Um, but maybe you don't have any familiarity with it at all. Maybe that's the first time you've ever heard of this concept of God's glory. Um, maybe for you, uh, it's, it's a negative experience. I'm not sure. Um, and my hope and my prayer this morning is that regardless of where we are, that we... Come under God's word. We try to lift it up. Say our, our experiences, the things that Aaron Havens has said, the things that Jason Shelton has said, um, maybe these other pastors have said, or your life experience, they all are to be held loosely compared to what this says. So that, that's my heart in this. That's my, that we would come under God's word this morning and that we say, God, uh, we are so small our minds are so small. Please help us understand um, what you would have for us in this. And so regardless of where we are, we move towards that this morning. Help us see um, what you would want us to see. Um, so I want to, the way that I, the way my mind works is I want to I walk us through this morning the definition of God's glory, okay? And then I want to ask the question, how does God relate to that? How does he interact to that? What does God have to do with God's glory? And then ultimately, I want to ask the question and try to answer the question, who cares? Okay? Because it's, as I said earlier, this isn't just um, an exercise of our mind. It's supposed to have life implications. So who cares? What does it mean Monday morning, 6 a.m.? How does God's glory impact your life today, tomorrow, and forever? Okay, so those are the three things that I want to talk about. God's glory, I want to define it. I want to ask how God relates to that, and then what, what difference does it make for you and I? Okay. So first, defining God's glory. God's glory is God's being 
and character put on display. So God's glory is God's being, who he is, and his characters, the qualities of him, put on display. And so the next question is to say, biblically, where do you get that definition, Jason? If, if that's great, if that God's glory is God's being, who he is, and um, his character, the qualities of him put on display, where do you get that? Okay. Um, we're going to go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. If you don't know where that book is at, close your Bible, stick your finger in the middle of it. You'll probably hit Psalms. Just go to the right. A little further, you'll hit Isaiah. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. Isaiah's writing. He's having a vision, and uh, his vision's pretty sweet. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there's these angelic beings. Seraphim literally means burning ones. So these, they are a flame. Okay, they are, they are burning but not consumed. And they are flying around God's throne. And they're shouting back one to another. They're making a declaration about who God is. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Maybe you're familiar with that word. Holiness, at its most basic um, definition, means to be set apart or otherness. And so these, these angelic beings that are flying around the throne of God, they're making a declaration that God is other than everything else. That he is set apart, that he is sacred, that he is holy. And in this text, when that holiness goes forth, the Bible calls that his glory. When the fullness of who God is and the otherness of who he is, when it begins to be put on display, when it fills the earth, the Bible calls that his glory. You see that? So God's glory, his being and who he is and his character, the qualities of him, Put on display, that's where I get my definition. And there's a lot of other texts that reinforce that definition. We don't have time to talk about all of those this morning. But God's glory, his otherness, put on display, that's his glory. And I just want to make two statements about God's glory. It's massively insufficient. The first one is, God desires his glory above all things. And the second one is that God is dedicated to his glory above all things. So the first one, God desires his glory above all things. Psalms 69, I just want to, 96, excuse me, just want to read this. If you have your Bible flipped there, if not, just listen. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from today to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idle, worthless idols. 
but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord of families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. He desires his glory. Exodus 34 verse 14. God commands us, do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Psalms 148, verse 5, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. God desires his glory. He desires that his being and character are put on display. Second, he is dedicated to it. God created the world and all the things in it for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6-7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and whom I made. God even sent Jesus into the world to put on flesh for his glory. Romans 15, 8 through 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing of your name. He's dedicated to it. He desires it. God's glory means everything to God. It's the motivation for why God does what he does. And he's actively, passionately, persistently pinning a story where his being and his character are put on display. So if you want to know what this book is about, it's about his glory. That means that he's the main character. It doesn't matter if you're in the book of Genesis. It doesn't matter if you're in the book of Matthew. It doesn't matter if you're in the book of Revelations or guess what, even the book of Ephesians. He's the main character. What we read about, what we see, what we encounter is his glory. Page after page, sentence after sentence, it's about his glory. His being and his character is the thing that we see. And if we're honest, I think we struggle with that. I struggle with that. I mean, we struggle with the reality that this, this message of hope, the story of all stories and the details of our lives and the way that this church looks and maybe the way that your family functions and the things that your family does or doesn't do, and even your own life, ultimately isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about God. His being, His character, put on display in our lives, in our world, for all to see and therefore worship because he's the only God worth that kind of attention. He's the only God that's worth that kind of focus, that kind of worship. Where are you this morning? 
How are you struggling to embrace God's glory? Because if we're honest, it's not a question of if, it's just how. We're all in different places. We all have different experience. So where does this text hit you this morning? Maybe you don't want to believe in this kind of a God. I get that. That God is doing all things for the sake of displaying himself. Maybe to you that seems a little selfish. Maybe a little egotistical. Maybe it's unloving. And I get that, and so I, I, I fear that that is the, 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 the kind of God that is articulated in our culture. If you know about Oprah Winfrey, um, she views God that way. You can read about it in her blog. The reason why she um, walked away from Christianity is because God is a God that's about himself, and she's right on, and she's right about that. C.S. Lewis, maybe you're familiar with him. He, before he was converted, when he was 29 years old, he said that when he was reading through the Psalms, Psalms 96, that this God seemed more like an old lady wanting compliments. And he just couldn't get behind that. He didn't understand that. And so I want to walk through that. I want to walk through, take a moment, and walk through how God's love for God is ultimately the thing that produces God's love for us. I want to say that again. I want to walk through how God's love for God is ultimately how God has designed for us to receive his love. And that's a lot different than the way that we experience selfishness in our world, right? You've got a person, a guy who's sold out for himself, totally fixated on his ability, on his gold, on his glories. And that individual pursuing himself has no benefit to anybody else, but that's not the way that it is with our God. Because God's being and who he is and his character and the qualities of him being put on display means that they must have manifestation. They must have expression. Let me illustrate. I want to be a good husband. I understand, I think, to some degree what it means to be a good husband. It doesn't mean I do that all the time, but it, I have an idea of what that looks like. And if I say that I love Emily, but my action of love never hits her, I don't really love her. So there's times where the fact that I love my wife, it expresses itself in me giving her flowers or taking her out to Texas Roadhouse because that's a good restaurant. You know, it, it, it has expression. It's, it's theoretical out here. If you say that you love your wife and, or your spouse or your significant others or your kids and it has no expression in your life, I think you can ask the question, do you really love? So is it with God. Because God is loving, he expresses love. And God is actively pursuing, putting his love on display. That's what makes him express it. Do you see the connection? God desires himself to be known, which means that all of who he is, all of his character, they all have tangible expressions, and that's how he designed it. His love 
His righteousness, His power, His might, His wisdom, His authority, His sovereignty, His kingdom. And all other things that we don't have time to talk about this morning, they all have expression. And we get to be beneficiaries of that expression. We get to be beneficiaries of a God who is passionately pursuing his glory because in that pursuit, he has expressed to us his love, his grace, his forgiveness, and so many other things. Therefore, Ephesians 1 verse 3, bless him, church. Praise is due his name. Maybe for you, your struggle isn't with that. Maybe you can get behind that this isn't about us and it's about God. Maybe you've been at Church Project or another church that's taught that for a while and so your, your challenge isn't with the theory, it's with the application. That's where I'm at. I get that this is about God's glory. Every moment of my life is dedicated towards that end, but that doesn't mean that I apply it. So maybe that's where you're at this morning. Because if you truly believe that God is ultimately about yourself, then you see that this life is not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me, and therefore it's not ultimately about my happiness or my comfort. And both of those things are things that sinfully I want, and I trade for it every day. So let's ask, how does God's glory impact and intersect our lives tangibly? Here's how it intersects my life as a parent. I've got a two-year-old. Most of you know who he is. He's a cute, rambunctious, willful young man. And there are times when I don't want to take the little choo-choo train and run it around and 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 around on this coffee table that we have on my knees. Okay, I don't want to engage with my son, I'd rather watch O'Reilly or something, you know. I'd just rather flip on the TV and flip up the, the History Channel and just kind of let it numb me. And there was actually a book that I read. I don't even remember what the, the, the title of it was. But it, it said that, like, different parents are going to have different seasons within their kids' development that they thrive in. And so I'm like, well, two-year-old, this is not my thing, Okay. <laughs> Sweetie, call, call, me, call me when he's seven, okay? You know, and, and I found myself in that place a, a lot of the times that I would justify, like, not engaging with my son. And God's glory challenges me in that area. It, it challenges me to see that even as a parent, God's ultimate goal in me being a parent isn't about my comfort. It's not about my happiness. It's about making known to my son the greatness of my God. And right now, as a two-year-old, making great the name of God in our household means going and engaging him around a table or going and chasing him around the island in our kitchen. Because it's making known to my son, even in a really small way, even in really maybe meticulous ways, the ultimate love and faithfulness of his heavenly daddy. And he needs to know that. 
It's showing Liam unending joy that God has over us for silly achievements in our life, like when Liam's going to shoot um, a basketball and he ends up throwing it straight into the ground and we celebrate and we clap and we jump for joy because it's like he just made the last winning shot when in reality he screwed it up. But guess what? God loves our attempts. He loves, he, he, he dances over with us in joy, Psalm says. My son needs to know that. He needs to have expression to the glory of God in his life. God's glory intersects my life every time I pull up to my house after a long day of work. And I just sit in my truck and I wrestle with the desire to go into my home, let my house serve me. Baby, you don't even know. (laughs) You don't even know what kind of day I just had. I'm just going to flip on the TV I just want to sit, just kind of let it wash over me and numb me. God's glory hits me in that place. It makes me desire to ask God to be present in our home. Lord, help your glory be manifested in your home. Help me be a conduit for manifesting the love and attention that you have for my family. Help me be a part of that. God's glory intersects my life as I think about serving in children's ministry here at Church Project. It does. It's not my comfort zone. That's not my wheelhouse. But God's glory has me asking, is this church body for you, Jason, or are you here to serve this church body? In all three examples, there's calling and action. And, and every single one of those calling and actions that I respond to, there's joy there. Why? Because God has created us to be a part of his glory. And so when we act in accordance to the thing for which we were created, there's joy there. Maybe for you, God's glory intersects you as you prioritize the value of house church over work or over that cool TV show that's on the History Channel. Is AD still going on? Some people know. Yeah, you know. Vikings, whatever other TV show there is out there. Or God's glory. Maybe it's intersecting you as you walk into this church building and consider like, are you here to be served or to serve? Maybe God's glory is intersecting you as you engage in other people's lives that are just hard to and not fun to engage in. However, it's intersecting your life If you're a Christ follower, the thing that God most desires and is most dedicated towards, we should be too. And the beauty of that is that we were created for that. This isn't isn't like an obligation. This is joy. It's God pushing us and nudging us towards our joy. We don't believe that a lot of times, but it's our joy. It brings our life into experience with scriptures like Psalms 1611. You know this verse? You make me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to be a church that believes that, sold out to it, 
that believes that as we walk in God's design for who we are and the things that we shoot about, that there's joy there. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are um, so faithful, even in light of our faithlessness. And Lord, I pray that you help us to just tangibly ask in our own lives, Lord, how does the glory of you intersect our different spheres of our life? I pray that you help us wrestle with that question this morning. Help us to wrestle with that question tomorrow. Help us to be resolved to act in accordance with the way that you've created us for our joy and for your glory. That's hard. It's a battle of belief. So Lord, I pray that you increase our faith. Help us to be men and women that desire to see who you are put on display in the city of Greeley in the realms and influences that we are a part of, that you've placed us in. Help us to see joy there. Help us to experience it. So thankful for the work of your son, what you did on the cross the greatest expression of who you are, the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Lord, I pray that we walk in that with great joy this morning. Amen. As you consider just how to respond, um, I'm going to sing a couple songs up here. There's a communion over here at the table, if that's a a way that you could worship God this morning in response to who he is and what he's done for you. You can take that cracker, dip that in the grape juice and just be reminded of what God did through his son on his cross for us. Um, If you've got a kid in um, Project Kids, I just maybe ask you as we stand, maybe you could go that direction and grab your kid. But regardless of the way that we worship, Regardless of the way that we respond, may we find joy in manifesting who God is in the spheres of influence that we have. Amen.